chaos in the streets as Taliban forces enter Kabul and take over the government. The Taliban don't just control Kabul, but the whole country and all the weapons the U.S. bought for the Afghan army. As it stands this hour, Taliban fighters surround the capital, Kabul, and negotiations are underway to secure a transfer of power. Good morning, dear Intriguer. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to reflect on two years since the Taliban took over Afghanistan. That's up next. Morning, John. How are you? Doing well, Ethan. How are you? Doing well. Thanks. So, John, today we're talking about Afghanistan, which was taken over by the Taliban on this very day two years ago. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm wondering, we've talked on the show about where each of us were when Russia invaded Ukraine last year, but the Taliban takeover of Kabul was an event of enormous global significance, too. I'm wondering where you were when it happened. Uh, two, two years ago in August, oh, I was um, actually in uh, quarantine in Australia from COVID. I, I don't you remember that pesky, pesky global pandemic we had a couple of years ago. Um, yeah, I'd just flown back to Australia from London and was in a uh, quarantine camp in the middle of the Australian desert for two weeks. So wow. uh, I, I remember it vividly actually reading about it uh, as I was in my tiny square little, uh, I won't say prison cell, but you know what I mean. <laughs> a good time for, for cable news if there ever was any. Uh, right, exactly. Well, it, well, John, I, I remember it vividly as well. It, it was a time of great uncertainty because for for all the fears about the Taliban taking over, they were also sending some signals that they planned to moderate their rule in Afghanistan. I mean, quickly, John, can you just remind us who the Taliban are? Yeah, it's good to kind of just quickly set the table, I guess. So the Taliban is an Islamist and nationalist militant group that rose to prominence uh, while fighting against the Soviets uh, back in uh, 1979 to 89. For about a decade, they fought against the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. They then fought and won the Afghan civil war during the 1990s and, and ruled the country from 96 to 2001 according to you know, an extremely strict interpretation of Islamic law, which folks might know as Sharia law. Um, they also famously harbored terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda. Um, Osama bin Laden ran many of his terrorist training camps from high up in the, in the Hindu Kush mountains in, in Afghanistan. And, that, and obviously that was the reason the US used, um, they decided to, to invade Afghanistan after the 9-11 attacks. Um, uh, back on October, I think it was the 7th of October, 2001, when US troops first went into Afghanistan. Um, that turned into a 20-year war, as we know, against the Taliban, which certainly wasn't planned at the time, until the US withdrew their forces and the Afghan government collapsed and the Taliban retook Kabul on this day back in uh, 2021. Right. And when they returned to power, they promised that things would be different, that this new regime would be more moderate and inclusive than the last one. How has that turned out? Well, I think it's safe to say they were clearly lies, um, you know, no hedging there. Um, and I think most people at the time who knew anything about the Taliban, who'd studied it or worked with them, they knew that already. Uh, you know, a leopard, well, a Taliban leopard doesn't change its spots, so to speak. Um, but of course, the Taliban had billions of reasons to lie to the world because for two decades, uh, the Afghan economy was propped up by literally billions of dollars of, of aid. Uh, in fact, I think uh, 80% of public spending was provided by foreign governments. Um, you know, think about this. In 2002, the country's GDP was less than $4 billion. By 2012, so 10 years later, it was over $20 billion. That's a 40% annual growth rate for 10 years. 
And by comparison, the economy of Guyana, uh, which is projected to be the, the fastest growing economy in the world for the next five or so years, is only expected to grow at a rate of 25% each year. So just astounding growth. So yeah, I mean, so that 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 kind of paints a picture about why the Taliban would be so keen to tell Western governments what they wanted to hear, right? Because of all that aid to, to keep the cash flowing. Um, and of course, then it pretty quickly became uh, clear that the Taliban wouldn't keep those kind of promises that they made about human rights and, and civil, civil liberties. Um, first, they barred girls from attending secondary school shortly after they came back to power in 2021. They then barred women from visiting public parks, gymnasiums, amusement parks, attending university. They did that late last year. Um, and then they barred female employees of humanitarian aid organizations in December last year as well. Well, that, that must make the work of those aid organizations a lot more difficult. Yeah, I mean, of course, uh, to, for, for two big reasons. One, obviously, this is pretty self-evident that um, aid organizations need people. They need humans to be able to be effective, to right. run effectively. And and women are about half of the human population. <laughs> right, exactly. It's it's a simple math, right? And if, if, if half the human population of Afghanistan isn't able to work at delivering aid, uh, it's a big problem. You're kind of really reducing the pool of available available workers um, makes the job of recruiting a, a whole lot harder. Um, but I think second, these restrictions are sort of antithetical to the values of the countries that have been providing that aid, the, the, the countries that are typically the largest donors. So those countries are, you know, rightly or wrongly, they're going to be less eager to help out to provide a lot of that, that aid. And so what does that mean for, for the average Afghan? You know, if, if these aid organizations are kneecapped and, and underfunded. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to paint a, a rosy picture. It's pretty grim, Ethan. Uh, I'm sorry to be such a downer, but according to the UN, at least two-thirds of Afghanistan's 38 million people, that's the population, um, two-thirds of the population are in need of humanitarian assistance, and around six million people, including a lot of children, because Afghanistan is a, is a relatively young country, um, they're on the brink of starvation. So for reference, back in 2020, around 18 million people required humanitarian assistance. Still a huge number, but you know we're almost you know get pushing up to double that now. Right, close to thirty. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and you know, and to make matters worse, Afghanistan's GDP is plummeting by you know, almost forty percent. Um, the exact inverse of the numbers I talked about just a little bit earlier. The gains made from two thousand and two to two thousand and twelve. Um, food inflation is among the highest in the world. Unemployment hovers around 40% too. So all of the statistics, all the numbers don't look great. Um, so if you ask me to describe the domestic, political and humanitarian situation, uh, it's pretty unfortunately easy. It's, it's really bad. After the break, we'll take a look at the Taliban's foreign policy and how the international community is approaching Afghanistan. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back. So, John, let's talk about how the world has approached its relations with Afghanistan, which, you know, it's located, look at a map, right at the crossroads of two incredibly important regions. You got the Middle East to the West, Asia to the East. So I want to start with, with its neighbor to the Southeast, Pakistan. What do we expect from relations between the Taliban and Pakistan? And, and what have we seen? Yeah, well, let me just 
start out here with a fact that I actually found surprising when we looked it up. And, and it's that not a single country in the world recognizes the Taliban as the legitimate government in Afghanistan. So I, I thought that was interesting and, and a good way to sort of set the conversation for the geopolitics of the region. And that was mostly true too when uh, the Taliban ruled the country back in 96 uh, to 2001 with just three exceptions, Saudi Arabia, the UAE and the country you mentioned, Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan was by far the closest country to the Taliban in terms of relations during that period. Um, they supplied the Taliban with funds, weapons, training, operational support, you know, the whole kit and caboodle. Um, and they continued to support the Taliban, though like they've denied that they, they support the Taliban, of course, but they've continued to support the Taliban by providing safe haven to Taliban leaders uh, during the course of the American or the Western invasion and occupation. Let us not Forget, Ethan, that Mr. Bin Laden met his end in a, in a compound in Abbottabad, which was a heavily fortified Pakistani army garrison. So it was clear that the Pakistanis were still pretty tight with the Taliban in that period. Um, so I think the ex expectation when uh, the US withdrew was that the Pakistan would continue to be or would reemerge as to the Taliban's closest ally. But it seems like that relationship is a lot different than what it used to be. Um, there's been a ton of st uh, deadly skirmishes between Taliban fighters and, and Pakistani border guards um, across the border. Um, they're not new, but they're becoming pretty frequent and, and very noticeable. And the government in Islamabad has blamed the Taliban for supporting terrorist groups now operating inside Pakistan. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is a pretty shocking development because there are people that would say that Pakistan more or less created the Taliban uh, in the 80s. You know, there's a large Pashtun population in Pakistan. The Taliban are a Pashtun group. And the idea among some Pakistani policymakers was to replace Pashtun national nationalism with Islamic nationalism. So they propped up the Taliban for that reason. And, and even two years ago, I remember our friend Imran Khan celebrated after the Taliban took over and, and said that they were, quote, breaking the chains of slavery. So, you know, if, if not Pakistan... Who does the Taliban now see as this potential big partner? Yeah, uh, well, the big one is China. Um, you know, just as sort of a, a random aside, I remember at the time uh, of the U.S. withdrawal, the foreign policy establishment in in London and and D.C. and around the world really were really wringing its hands that China would fill that vacuum left by the U.S. and and that was a big win for China, um, and, and so on. Of course, China shares a, a very narrow 92-kilometer border with Afghanistan on its far western flank, um, an area that many folks will be familiar with. It's Xinjiang um, because of you know Chinese human rights violations, internment camps, re-education programs that the Chinese government has, has forced the local Uyghur Muslim population to undergo. Um, that's because China's border with Afghanistan is a big source of anxiety for Beijing. Uh, for years, they've been worried about Islam, uh, Islamist movements sort of sprouting up in their in the Chinese Muslim populations in Western China, and they've been worried that the Taliban might support or harbor separatists and and, and among these groups and kind of encourage them to foment uh, terrorism inside China. So, as well as trying to, you know, I'm just going to call a spade a spade here wipe out the Uyghur minority, Beijing has decided that the next best course of action at the same time, I suppose, is to make nice with the Taliban so that the Taliban doesn't kind of destabilize that Western part of China, the border regions. Um, and they've done that by signing, you know, a huge classic China, signing a handful of commercial agreements with the Taliban to support infrastructure, energy projects, lots of resource extraction, this kind of stuff. 
Um, and, it, and it could end up being a big win-win for both sides. It gives the Taliban revenue, obviously. They, we've just talked about how much they need, they need outside cash. Um, but it also potentially gives China access to, you know, minerals like lithium that could be hiding in in the Afghani soil. Um, you know, I, I think that it's important to note here that the Taliban might not be fully able to control the security situation in that part of Afghanistan. In December, five Chinese nationals were injured during a suicide bombing in Kabul. Um, and in other areas in the region, Chinese projects have actually increased resentment towards Chinese rather than decreased it. So it, it's, a, it's, it's a far from clear picture. Where does that leave relations with the Taliban's you know, erstwhile adversaries, these Western countries like the US? Yeah. Well, again, you're not going to be surprised by any of my answers, but uh, uh, the US is paying very close attention to that relationship, the the Taliban and and the Chinese relationship. I think for the most part over the last two years, the US and its allies have been, you know, pretty, pretty determined to not work with the Taliban on, on almost anything. Um, Really don't want to legitimize the Taliban's human rights abuses. Um, But as with always, always with these kinds of things that the humanitarian situation is getting so bad that it's it's becoming really difficult to ignore uh, at the moment. So, you know, there are there are some ways that they can dispense aid through non-Taliban channels, but you know, in order to really reach these at-risk Afghani people, donors don't have a hell of a lot of choice but to work through the de facto government, whoever it is in right. Afghanistan, and it's the Taliban right now, and whoever it is around the world. You, you, well, you yeah, rarely this, have this that is choice. Exactly right. Like if if yeah, exactly right. Um, so you know, I think I think. <laughs> With those concerns as a backdrop, the U.S. officials are sort of tentatively trying to reach out to the Taliban. They they met with officials from the Taliban in Doha uh, two weeks ago, um, end of July. Um, really kind of, I think, just a, an opportunity for both sides to sort of get in a room together, express frust- uh, frustrations. Um, it was the first time the two sides had met in two years. So it was a pretty big development. Nothing you know concrete came of it, but there, that, it's a sign of where things are going, right? John, when I reflect on these past two years, despite this encouraging meeting between the U.S. and Taliban officials and Doha that you mentioned, I mean, I'm left without much to feel hopeful about. Uh, the Taliban have have proved that they won't change, and I think they've cemented their power in a way that they didn't quite do the first time around. I mean, there yeah, there are no fair. major opposition groups challenging them, at least in a military mm-hmm. sense, and there's no political space for opposition parties. And by all accounts, there are, are very few divisions inside Taliban leadership. So it's it's hard to see how the conditions of ordinary Afghans will improve. I mean, from your from your vantage, any any positives, any reason to feel optimistic? Yeah, I think it's important that we ask that question because the news is so so negative about Afghanistan for, for very good reasons we've just explored. But if I was looking for any positives. I think that the big one would be that Afghanistan's security landscape under Taliban rule um, reveals a country that's significantly more peaceful than it was back in you know 2021. That let me be very clear. Big caveat. It, yeah. Exactly. It doesn't mean it's peaceful. <laughs> uh, plenty of bombings. Plenty of violence. We just talked about some suicide bombers um, earlier in the show, but more peaceful than it was. Um, I just want to read from a crisis group report that I've got in front of me from late last year. They say that the security apparatus across the country has visibly relaxed. Hundreds of checkpoints on roads and highways have been dismantled because the Taliban lack manpower to maintain them and, in any case, do not perceive major threats from the rural villages that hosted their fighters 
during the decades of insurgency. So maybe kind of the best way to sum it up is that many Afghans might feel a little bit safer than they did in recent years um, because the violence is less pervasive, there's less visible security apparatus around them. Um, but I suspect that's me doing my very best to find positives here, Ethan. Uh, you know, ultimately, <laughs> Taliban is firmly in charge of Afghanistan. Um, and if we take the most optimistic projection about the future, it's that the Taliban really does want to govern Afghanistan properly, albeit ultra-religiously, ultra-conservatively and all of that, but that they want to try and make it a functioning state. Um, if, if that happens, it'll take them many years to build that capacity, that, that infrastructure, if that's their goal. The more realistic projection is probably that things might improve marginally. Western partners might find a few new ways to deliver aid, um, you know, small incremental improvements. Uh, and of course, the worst case scenario, well, I think that probably just looks a lot like what Afghanis have had to endure since, since the Soviets first invaded almost 50 years ago. We'll have to see how things pan out. I, I know that there are a lot of leaders and capitals across the world that are eager to help out everyday Afghans. It's just a matter of finding the partners to do it. So let's hope things get better. Yeah, fingers crossed. Absolutely, Ethan. And that's going to do it for me. For more of our coverage of two years since the Taliban takeover, check out today's full-length feature in the International Intrigue newsletter. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Friday.